Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Missing Pillar of Health podcast. We are at episode number 80, my friends. I wanted to thank two listeners before we dive into our episode today. Grateful Holly says, very useful, such a great podcast. I love the wide variety of topics covered. The episode on dealing with eco-grief is one of my favorites. Me too, Holly. Me too. That was an interview I did with Lindsay Coulter. You can go back and check that out on episode number 26. And Antonietta F. says, fantastic podcast. Emma is lovely to listen to, informative, approachable, and thought-provoking. I never miss an episode. Thank you so much to both of you for taking the time to rate and write a review of the show. I really appreciate it. As a little bit of a grassroots movement and a small business, I really appreciate you taking the time to do so. If you have been enjoying the show, I would love it if you could take a minute to rate and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. All right, today's episode is all about creating a healthy relationship with food, particularly for those of you with children. And if you identify as having a picky eater, this will resonate in particular. My guest is Nishta Saxena, and I invited her on the show as she is a clinical dietitian, very science-based. So if you know me, you know that's something that I really want to prioritize for the show. And we talked about a lot of different things. I wanted to preface this with the understanding that there can be a lot of pressure and guilt and confusion around food, particularly in the holistic health space. So I wanted to get her take on a few things. We talk about how we know that our child is getting what they need to grow optimally, what factors are at play with a quote-unquote picky eater, how parents can support a child who maybe isn't eating as many vegetables as you would like, We talk about multivitamins and are they necessary and so much more. It was a fantastic conversation. I hope you enjoy. Welcome to the Missing Pillar of Health podcast, the show that tackles the often misunderstood and underestimated topics related to toxins and their impact on our health and well-being. I'm your host, environmental engineer, mom of two, and founder of Green at Home, Emma Roman. My mission is to help you reduce toxins in your life without fear, judgment, or shame, so you can be more informed and empowered to take action on issues that matter to your health. The research is clear that toxic chemicals found in the products we use, food we eat, water we drink, and air we breathe are contributing to the rise of chronic illness, allergies, infertility, autoimmune disease, and more. The good news is you can reduce your exposure without having to drastically change your lifestyle, and I'm here to show you how. As Margaret Mead said, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. I believe addressing toxins is a critical step towards creating healthier and happier families, communities, and ultimately a better planet. And that starts right here, right now. Let's dive into today's show. Hi, Nish. Welcome to the show. Hi, great to be here. Thank you. Thanks for being here. I am looking forward to this conversation. Before we (laughs) dive in... Can you share a little bit about who you are and how you help families? 
Absolutely. So I'm Nisha Saxana. I am a registered dietitian and pediatric nutritionist, and I have a company called Vibrant Nutrition. And I have been working in practice as a nutritionist for 15 years. And so I help families in many, many ways. I help them one-on-one if they're working through feeding difficulties with their child, everything from starting solids right through to when their children may develop picky eating or unfortunately if they get into an area of eating disorders. And I also work with people in groups. I do a lot of speaking. I'm a national nutrition expert for CTV and all of their different shows. And so I'm in the media. I love doing knowledge translation, just really helping families understand, you know, what are the things they really need to worry about when it comes to feeding their kids? What's true? What's a myth? I base my practice and how I work with people in practicality, but also in science, really evidence-based, just to help cut through the noise because there's like way too much information out there for parents. Parenting is hard enough, but I like to make feeding easy as possible for them. And that's what I love about you, following you on Instagram. And, you know, I've, I've known you kind of from a personally, but more from a distance for, for a while now. And you do, you have that really pragmatic approach and recognizing that not every family is going to be able to eat green smoothies for breakfast and serve <laughs> broccoli and homemade everything for every single dinner. So that's why. I wanted to have you on the show. And it was actually by request. I've had a lot of people asking about food and nutrition, and they wanted input specifically from a dietitian standpoint. So I am grateful that you accepted to be here. Oh, yeah. I'm so happy to be here. I'll just dive right in and start with the the meaty part. So we're told that food is medicine, you know, and a lot in the holistic health space. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of emphasis on healthy eating and what does it mean to be healthy? And my personal pet peeve is all of these diets with names. I'm like against anything (laughs) that has a title and is popular. That's just, I don't know, I bucket at any chance I get. But I think it's it can be really stressful as a parent when you have a child who does not like vegetables or has a very limited palate for things that you're hearing are healthy. So right off the hop, what do you say to parents who, you know, hear this advice about how many veggies and fruits and everything that you should eat, but their kid is only eating butter, pasta, and goldfish crackers? Yeah, it's such a great question. And obviously, this is probably the number one thing that I help people with, especially those with young families and kids. And the first thing I want to say is all of that stuff you're bunking, it, you should be doing that because things, diets with names and patterns and, you know, superfoods and you have to eat this and it's all bull. Sorry for the swear. But it really is not something parents need to worry about making sure their children are getting this like uber healthy diet simply because that's not how we measure health and wellness in children. We don't actually measure it by how many acai berries were in your smoothie bowl in the morning. So I want parents to understand you can eat a wide variety of diet patterns and different kinds of food, whatever you have access to. Everyone does not have access to the same type of food in the same quantities all the time. And so your children can be healthy with very different and varying diets, number one. Number two, when you're in that space of having a child who's eating what I call the quote unquote white foods, and by that I mean what you've just mentioned, right? Like, I guess butter's not white, but 
you know, pasta or white bread or crackers, limited palate, limited diet. And then you're, you know, looking at an Instagram influencer and it's like, oh, she made her son this like green goddess salad. Like I should get on that. That's like trying to run a marathon. That's like waking up on Monday and being like, I've never run before, but I'm going to put these shoes on and I'm going to go run 42 kilometers. That's what it, that's really what you're doing when your mind is telling you, oh my gosh, I should make sure my son's eating chives. It's like, there's, there's adults that don't even eat chives, you know? So what I want to remind you of is it is a process. Okay. There's a reason that your child has gotten to this point where perhaps they have a very limited diet or you've gotten into a rut. Maybe they've always had things just didn't really open up when they started eating as a toddler into their school age years. And so don't stress about where you are. But I think the important thing is to look at, you know, what, where can you go? You know, like if really your child has, is eating less than 20 foods in total, that's a time where I always suggest to people that they need to seek out professional help because over time, as you age as a child into your teen years, things don't generally get a lot more open. They can open up again as young adults, but a lot of times we really want that, that variety and that interest and that fun and that adventure to be happening in the younger years. So don't, don't feel bad about it, but know that you can shift. You can shift very slowly and gently. And, you know, even if your child never eats chives or Brussels sprouts, you can still have a healthy child. And how like 20 foods, you know, when you think about it, if your child is eating more than that, then you're saying that they are maybe they could get some support, but they there there is the opportunity there to be getting kind of that quote unquote balanced diet and still be able to have what they need. Sure. I mean, I mean, it's not really food categories, right? So I'm talking like 20 specific foods. Mm -hmm. So of course, if you're only at 20 or you're between 20 and 30 or something, we, we'd like it to be as many as possible, right? So the more variety, one of the cornerstones of nutrition and nutrition is very backed by science and evidence is the more variety that you have, the more protected you are, whether it's growing, building your skeleton as a child, growing your organs, mental health in childhood, which has never been more important. So more variety is always better. But if you have, so when I say 20 foods, I don't mean like vegetables as a category. I mean, if you were to say cucumbers, you know, my child will eat cucumbers, they'll eat white bread, they'll eat a cracker, they'll eat raspberries, they'll eat pasta. If you've only got 20 foods, you know, you really want to seek out help. If you're over that, you know, there could be some good stuff happening that you just need to, you as a parent need to kind of push the variety in the house because sometimes it's that people get into ruts and they just don't know what to make. So if you already have some vegetables, fruits, which is one food category, and then we have grains and grain products, then we have protein foods. As long as you've got foods in each category and sorry, healthy fats, which is not technically a food group, and you're over 20 foods, that's wonderful. But we want to try and liberalize the diet as much as we can and keep things flowing and keep that variety really high. And so whether you, you've got a kid who's at the 20 food or higher spectrum, how do we know that our child is getting what they need to grow? Like to your point about seeing influencers feeding their kids, you know, Buddha bowls and acai berries and, and all of that <laughs> stuff. It makes it seem like we need to have all of these exotic things. And, you know, yes, there are different foods that serve the brain and serve different elements of growth. But as a parent, how do you know that you are giving them the best that you can? Well, it's a really great question. This is probably the second most common question I get is, is how do I know my kids? Okay, basically. And what's interesting about this, this is a real misconception that marketers and a lot of influencers in that mom kid space use is that 
The dietary reference intakes, or what we call RDIs, DRIs, as they're called, recommended daily nutrient in- intakes, these are things that, you know, we generally try to find the midpoint of what, what amount of vitamin C or zinc or vitamin A or, or, you know, iron or calcium do children in different age groups require to sort of grow in that, like the middle of a nice bell curve, right? Like where things are going really well in that 50% area. And the thing is that we actually don't have some science, a lot of science and a lot of the DRIs for these different, we have some, but we have, we don't have accurate numbers for say infants, six months to two years, even among school age children. And so the myth is that there's this number that you need to achieve. Like if they get this much of this, this much of this, this much of that, that they'll be okay and they'll be, they'll be perfect. And so that's why a lot of parents will use supplements like a multivitamin because they'll think, Oh, well, this got, this has everything in it. I'm going to give it to my kid and then they're going to be healthy and I'll feel good about myself as mom. <laughs> so I do, I do want moms to feel good about themselves. But my, my point there is just that we don't even know some of the amounts of nutrients that children need to optimally grow. We don't have that information scientifically. Like fatty acids are a great example of where people are always talking about omega-3 fatty acids. And oh my God, they're taking fish oil and krill oil and their cod liver oils, right? And if their kids don't like fish or they're trying to eat fish, and sometimes it's very, very confusing. So I wouldn't worry about the minutia of different minerals, vitamins, and fats and proteins. So how do we as a clinician, how do I know a kid's growing well? It's everything together. It's not one single area. So if we look at their growth pattern and their own growth curve, their height, their weight for young children, when you're measuring head circumference, these things are tracking according to that child's growth trend. So they don't have to be a certain number on a World Health Organization growth chart, but they do need to be following their own curve. Any kind of, you know, real shot upwards, you know, in weight without any type of growth in length or any shot downwards across a couple percentiles, that's a real downward trend. And that's sudden. I mean, these are things that are red flags that your child's doctor should be picking up on. But other than that, you could be anywhere on that curve. You could be baby number one out of 100 babies born on the same day. And that's going to be, you know, following the lower percentiles, or you could be on the higher end of that. We really want the percentiles to match and be be similar in a way in height and weight. And yes, some kids get a lot longer and taller than they do before they get bigger. South Asian babies are a great example of that. So that's one thing we use, but we use everything. You know, your your doctor, your child's doctor is looking at behavior, developmental milestones. How is their sleep? Sleep has a huge connection to nutrition. So if your children aren't sleeping well, that could be a connection to them not getting what they need, whether it be iron or total calories or zinc or magnesium. We look at digestive process. I mean, that's the hottest area of nutrition research right now is how the gut and the microbiome and the digestion children have impacts their brain and their growth and their immune system. So we check in on that. We do how we have to do like a full clinical assessment. And then finally, we have to look at behaviors and playtime. Do they have, you know, are they, are they having fun? Are they happy? Are they well adjusted? Do they have behavioral issues that, you know, are, are really causing a lot of stress at home or at school? How are they learning? How is their tracking in terms of that? All of these things together, we, we pull together. How are their teeth? How was their dentition like? These are all the things we have to pull together, the pieces to understand if our child's growing optimal. That was a really long answer. That was amazing. And I now have like a million questions. <laughs> so when you're pulling all of this information and data on a child and pulling together really a picture of their kind of complete person and not just Mm -hmm. looking at little things in isolation, which I think 
medicine does. Yes, it does. It doesn't look at at things that holistically. No. When you are seeing these different patterns arise, whether it's in behavior or growth or, you know, maybe as kids go through puberty, there's other things that you're seeing. Do you then kind of look at that picture and are able to identify, okay, this might suggest a deficiency or kind of room for improvement in certain nutrients or minerals or vitamins? Like, are there trends and patterns that specifically pinpoint back that way? Yeah, that's it. Yeah, absolutely. And that is the actual, I like to call it magic. I mean, I don't know if anyone listening will, but that's the magic of being a clinician and being a clinical dietitian, right? I've practiced for 15 years working with thousands and thousands of families. And so that, that clinical work of being able to match together and understand how some of these potential, and it may not just be nutrient deficiencies, it could be macronutrient deficiencies, not micronutrients. It could be the eating behaviors and the environments that are impacting what a child eats. It could be you know, social factors. We are able to bring all that information together. We're able to assimilate that. And that's actually how we're able to come up with strategic plans and strategic actions parents can take to improve their child's health. Absolutely. We link all that stuff back. And sure, I mean, if necessary, you know, it's not often, it's definitely the minority of children that need to be medicalized in this situation. Children that are seriously ill, seriously malnourished, failing to thrive, have severe behavioral issues, you know, a potential risk of diagnosis of allergies. Like we may do blood work and and certain clinical tests on those kids. If they're having like significant pain, things like ultrasounds may be ordered, but the medicalization of helping your child thrive, I mean, that's that's going to be the smaller proportion of parents. Most of the time, it's just looking at all this information and that's our expertise as dietitians. And, and my expertise as a pediatric dietitian is being able to pull that all together and say, what are the things that are probably causing this issue? What are the symptoms we're seeing? And then how can we track that back to changing something within the diet or lifestyle? And what would some of those changes look like? I mean, if it's not telling you to make Buddha bowls and goddess salads and and the like, what are some of the kind of common changes that you see yourself recommending? Yeah, I think it comes, I think a large part of it actually comes to what's being offered. So I think sometimes a common issue I run into is it's not really that there's children that are so resistant. I mean, picky eating is an interesting concept. I use that word in my marketing. I use that word in the terminology in that my new program I've created, Feed Better. And the reason I use it is because parents use it, right? Parents come and say, oh, my child is a picky eater. But the truth of the matter is oftentimes parents have gotten into a rut. They they feel like their child is maybe a picky eater, but they then may not be making, you know, this wider variety of food. So low food variety would be one of the main things I see as a shift that needs to happen in a lot of the families that I work with. And it's not like often it's not purposeful when you're dealing with typically developing children. All of a sudden, I'm talking to moms and, and dads and they're just like, we've never made that. I have never heard of that. Or, you know, they're just, you get into a bit of a rut, right? Like, working life with young kids, it's relentless. And so I think that it happens accidentally. Bad habits, I call it bad culture. In my new program, I really go through breaking down the bad culture that you have in your house. When I say bad culture, I mean everything. I mean, it could be thoughts you're having about the food that you're giving your child. And I know that's a bit much, that sounds a bit woo-woo, but really the way that you're thinking about food when you feed your child impacts how your child eats. 
the more that we learn about this in science, the connectedness between how our body responds to something and then how that translates into emotion and then then how the thoughts we have have been downloaded from somewhere and how that interaction all impacts food and feeding. That's another area where a lot of people need to do some fixes and cleanup and they don't realize it. You know, that's one thing I specialize in because I'm a behavioral counseling dietitian. And I've been a behavioral counselor for so many years is really looking at some of those pieces, not just like you said, right? Are you getting enough zinc? Sure. We can definitely go through. I often will create for clients like, you know, recipe books. If you, if we sense there's a nutrient deficiency, like iron is extremely common. How can we get iron rich foods in all different dietary patterns and different ways? And so it's not just about the nutrition pieces, but it can be like, changes that relate to even how you're thinking about feeding your kids. Well, and I think the mindset going into it, especially if you have a child that you consider a picky eater, and then you hear, you know, the work is to add variety and you've got busy evenings. I fall into Mm -hmm. the same food rut. I like ask me to make more different foods and my brain just like shuts down. So I completely... I completely get it. And so even that mindset of feeling like it's overwhelming right off the hop, that's going to yeah. translate down yeah. the line is what I'm hearing. Yeah. And it and it is overwhelming. Okay. So like, let's be real. I mean, for a lot of people, food, food or what they're making or nutrition, maybe it's not the biggest priority, right? At the moment. And oftentimes it becomes a priority when parents are noticing, right? All of a sudden you're like, oh my, you know, you're not eating any of this. And then it becomes a problem. It's like having a drip, drip, drip from a leak in your ceiling. Well, you don't notice it until there's a huge puddle on your floor. So the key that I try to teach people is instead of again, waking up and putting your shoes on and trying to run a marathon is if you start small and just do very gentle shifts where it's like, maybe you try a new recipe. And if you, even if you can do that twice a month, you know, that's not, that's not probably overwhelming for most people. Have your kid look at a recipe with you that looks fun and interesting. Sure, you can start with baking. I mean, I hate baking, but I hear people love it. (laughs) Uh, Apparently, it's a big thing. It was a big COVID thing, but people love the baking. You know, you can look at a baking recipe and then you can move through to cookery, you know, and do like fun, fun things like little English muffin pizzas. Like, you know, anything new and novel is a great way to spark interest and change for everyone in the family. And it doesn't have to be hard. So that you're looking at your child and you're thinking, oh, they're not eating. And then you're thinking, I have to get variety into their diet. Well, that's not a smart goal. But if you said to yourself, me and Amy are going to look for two new recipes a month that we're both think are fun and interesting, and we're going to do that. And slowly but surely, you're going to be able to make changes and it's not going to feel overwhelming. Because as they say, Rome wasn't built in a day. If you have a child that hasn't been eating a high variety of foods for four, five, six, seven years, change is going to be slow, but it can definitely happen. And it can happen faster than you think. The mistake parents make is they think it's going to happen because they're driving this feeling like, we got to have more chives and Brussels sprouts and acai berries. But when it it actually happens, when you start to have more fun as a family, that's when it happens. And having various levels of picky eating over my kids lifetime i ran into the bad habit too of saying oh well they don't like this food so they're not going to like this version of it either my son will not eat tomatoes as tomatoes he will eat pasta sauce yeah and surprisingly he decided that he likes tomato soup and so Mm. right but like 
he tried tomato soup by accident. I wasn't going to be like, okay, well, you don't like tomatoes. Maybe you'll like tomato soup because in my brain, it's like, okay, you don't like tomatoes. And so I think, you know, there's that projection as well and letting, letting them get curious and not assume that they're not going to eat something. I mean, that also might be an anomaly and not a great example for other kids, but I've experienced that in a few different ways. It's a great example. That's the classic example of what parents are doing is you're, you are exactly doing that. Your mindset is in, is in a place of, oh, you tried this food once or twice or, oh, whatever. You, you had steamed carrots once and you don't like them. And then you're just like, well, they don't like carrots. So now I can't make any recipes with carrots. Or if I make carrots, it's going to be a big complaint. What it absolutely goes down that path. I want, I want to think, I want you to sort of use the analogy of sports. This is a funny thing to think about when you're thinking about like increasing vegetable or protein variety for your kids. You don't say to yourself, okay, Liam, some of your friends are playing in a little baseball league and we're just going to go, you know, try it out once. And you go there and they've never put on a baseball glove and they've never stood in a baseball stance and they've never hit a ball. And it takes a while to practice to be able to hit a ball with a bat, right? Mm-hmm. And so you're not going to put the glove on, get all set up with the thing throw it once and then just be like, oh, Liam hates baseball. Let's get out of here. He doesn't go to run. It's not for him. <laughs> yeah, like yeah. it could take you, it could take you three months to connect, to be able to connect that bat to that ball. Like it depends on your child and their age and their their natural inclination. So the same, you know, the same thing is true with food. Don't make assumptions about what your child likes. Don't make assumptions that they're not willing to try new things. And don't, don't, you know, you're really carving out their life and their path for them when you're saying, well, they don't eat this and they, they won't like that. Well, that's that's not really fair because you're, you're, you know, maybe Liam would like baseball, but if you only take him to one practice or one, you only try once, you're never going to know. And the other thing is, if you never try lacrosse and hockey, hockey and soccer and ballet and, you know, gymnastics, you're, you're also not going to know if he likes any of those other sports. So it's not just about, well, don't just, don't just assume your child doesn't like something because you've watched them not like it a few times. Also make sure that variety piece, offer them a smorgasbord of whatever else is out there because you actually don't know what they might like, right? The one win I want to tell you, Emma, is that if your son likes tomato sauce and tomato soup, those have way more nutrients than raw tomatoes anyway. (laughs) What? Yes, they are much more concentrated in antioxidants such as lycopene and they're actually more concentrated in vitamins. I mean, you want to try and see if you can get you know, not super, super salty soup or sauce. They're out there now, though, but they're way more nutritious than raw tomatoes. Yeah. Good to there know. You go. There you go. <laughs> Little win for you on a Monday. Yeah. Perfect. So what can parents do then if they're concerned about the variety that their child is getting? They've recognized that, okay, they're in a rut. You know, maybe they are serving fruits and vegetables and their kid eats the same, like, I don't know. My my kids, I feel like I just give them the same freaking lunch every day. I get bored of making it. I can't imagine them eating it, but everything else just comes back empty. So I give up and I focus my efforts on dinner. That's my, yeah. I'll switch up dinner more than pretty much either of the other meals. And that's where I focus. Oh, I also wanted to share a tip that I thought about as you were talking about new recipes, because for me, The idea of finding new recipes and searching the internet for recipes that are simple and tasty. I've been burned so many times by random internet recipes that that (laughs) is like the limiting factor for me. And so honestly, you guys, like you probably have cookbooks at home. I'm guessing 
I have a pile of them. And for some reason, they just sat in the cupboard and I never used them. And so when I realized that the limiting factor was being angry at the internet, (laughs) I wouldn't go and Google a recipe for whatever, I don't know, chickpea curry. I would go into the cookbooks that I already have and that are I've used recipes from in the past and really enjoyed and flip through there. And it it narrows the scope also of where you can find things. And so make it easier on yourself. More options is not always better. And so if you can go to your cupboard and use what you already have, there's that's my tip. That's a great tip. I'm going to start giving that. I love the way that you frame that because why did you buy the recipe book in the first place? Well, probably because someone, you made something out of it or you like the author or you tried one of the recipes before. So an average re- a book, cookbook, you know, maybe you cook two or three recipes. Well, there's probably 40 recipes in there, right? So the style and the way that different chefs and, and actual cookbook authors write their recipes, there, if there's going to be something familiar and something that you'll, you'll probably like about it. And it's so much easier. You're absolutely right. When you narrow down choice, it makes it so much easier to make the right choice. So another add-on to your tip would be sit down with your child, flip through the book. Books have pictures. Kids mm-hmm. love pictures. Kids are visual. So like look at the food photography and look at something and be like, ooh, what do you think of this? Does this look interesting? That's one of my number one tips is get your children involved from the beginning of the process. Don't spring something new on them on a Wednesday night after hockey practice when they're super pissy and you have work deadlines, like that's not a great time, right? We're talking about when you have time and space, often I suggest to people to cook a new recipe on a weekend day if they're not working on the weekends because there's a bit more breathing room and get your kid involved from the beginning and then be like, okay, we picked this chicken piccata with purple carrots recipe and now we're going to go shopping. We have to make sure we get our purple carrots and our this and that. Bringing them through that whole process is a great way to start to increase variety because then you're getting the buy-in from children. And you can do this with toddlers, like really, the younger, the better. Older children may even have some of their own ideas. If they come up with an ingredient they're interested in, then just like go together back to that cookbook collection and take a look and see. Another great tip is if you have elders in your life that are part of your child's life, is get those elder recipes, man. If you have my grandmother's schnitzel, you know, I have my grandmother's doll that she made that was like outstanding. Like get those recipes and the storytelling around a recipe that comes from your heritage, that comes from your elders and your history and your lineage gets kids interested so much faster than a Google search. Totally. And one of the cookbooks that I go back to again and again is actually one that my mom handmade when I went off to university and she ah. put together a binder of recipes. Some of them were ones that she made a lot when I was growing up. Others were from my grandmother. And so cool. that I would like to do that for my children as well. It was such a great kind of combo. And I know that my mom still has handwritten recipe cards from her mom. And so yes. not forgetting like, and I think that's where we get so caught up in the kind of glitz and glam of, of Instagram and Google searching. We forget, right? There's yeah, so many. Totally great recipes that you probably really liked as a kid that you've forgotten yes. about. Yeah. And and the thing is like new is not better. Just mm. because there's like a new blog that has like new recipes, new is not better. It's really not. I mean, I have been burned like you, Emma, and I work in the food and nutrition and wellness space. I don't, actually don't work in wellness. That's, that's also bull****. 
I am, I actually work in nutrition and health and science and kids. And it's like, they're just terrible recipes out there. Just because you can write a recipe doesn't mean you tested it. And it doesn't mean it's nutrient dense and it doesn't mean it tastes good. And frankly, if it's not fun to make, and if it doesn't taste good, it doesn't matter how nutritious it is, right? <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Well, it's going to eat it. And, and food is extremely expensive now. So going back to some of those old favorites that you grew up with, that is such an amazing... And then you get to tell your kid a story. Like, my Nana used to make me this soup when I didn't feel good. And it's the special magic feel better soup. And then your kids instantly like, feel better soup. I want to try that, right? And that's one of the pillars of the program as well that I work I work out with people is that you you have to make it fun. You have to make it engaging because food is more than just like putting Brussels sprouts in your mouth. How you make the Brussels sprouts and how you eat the Brussels sprouts has a bigger impact than the nutrition inherent within the Brussels sprout itself. And what do you mean by how you eat? How you eat, like what is happening when you're eating? What is your, what are, what are your thoughts? What's your environment like? Who's with you when you're eating? How are you seated? What, what, what was the little prep you had before you sat down to eat? Do you feel ready to eat? What are you thinking about when you eat? Is it a relaxed environment? Is it a happy environment? Is it a curious and fun environment? Is it a stressful environment? Are there people that have a lot of negative emotions? And is there anger? Is there frustration? How you eat, especially when it comes to children, is more important than what you eat. If that sounds crazy coming from the medical pediatric dietitian, that's okay because it's something that people need to understand more of. The science of how we eat has a massive impact on what we eat in the long term and on our health in the long term. So how can we keep a table that is low on stress and pressure when you've got kids who aren't eating a variety of foods or maybe what you would like to see them be eating in terms of vegetables and and those kind of yeah. important nutrients. What are some of your tips for for dealing with that in a low stress way? Well, you're going to have to know, you're going to have to do some self-talk legitimately as a mom or a father or mom and dad together. If anyone's old enough to remember a show called Seinfeld, like if anyone remembers the first, probably the first use of like self-talk or like affirmations was when George, I think it was George Costanza's dad, which was feeling like he was going to have a heart attack and he had to use the term serenity now <laughs> to calm himself down. I can't believe I'm referencing Seinfeld on our podcast, but the reason why is expectations. You're right, Emma. If you sit down and you're thinking, oh, here we go again. I, you know, I'm going to hear like, I don't like that. Yucky. Ew. You have to just be in another room while you're getting dinner ready or sorry, everyone's in another room. You're going to have to do some deep breathing. You're going to have to breathe in, exhale it out and just let it go and say, I'm here. I'm making food. I'm going to get myself into an energetic space that it doesn't matter. This right now it doesn't matter what's going to happen, what the outcome of this is. I'm, I'm offering my family food and we're going to sit together. And that's what's most important. And again, it's about that marathon analogy. You're not going to run the marathon the first day you put your shoes on. So the very first thing is deep breath. If you have to talk to yourself, sometimes I give parents a mantra to use using like their favorite color in an animal. So I have some parents that'll just be like, blue monkey, blue monkey. And I even have parents that are in dual parent households using that word with each other. Like if you can see your partner is going to freak out because they're like, I just want Jeremy to eat his broccoli. And that's, I have it happen all the time. I do a lot of counseling with couples around this, but you can't, you don't want to ruin that dinner vibe. You can just look at your partner and if you guys have this, you know, you know your mantra, you can just be like blue monkey, which is kind of funny, you know, and it's kind of a lighthearted way to say like, hey, check yourself. 
you know, getting stressed out and having expectations that this meal is not going to be helpful. The second thing is just having involved your kids in the process a bit. So they're more engaged, perhaps. And, you know, making sure that even if you want to try something new or there's something new on the table, there's still foods that your kids are familiar with, at least two foods that they're familiar with that can be add-ons to the meal. But the most important advice I have is to let go of the expectation. If you aren't in the process and haven't done the prep work for starting to break down those picky eating patterns, it takes time. I would see anywhere from 12 weeks of consistent changing through to, for some some resistant eaters, I mean, it can take up to a year or two to really start to liberalize the diet. So just know that and just let go of your expectation that you're going to serve broccoli for the third time and your, your kid's going to scarf it down. It just may not happen and that's okay. Should you get up and go make them their favorite meal if what you've worked on together and they've been involved in the process and everyone's happy when they sit down and they taste it <laughs> and they throw their spoon in the air and say, nope, not going to eat it? Yeah, that's a great question. No, absolutely not. So they, first of all, if they're throwing their spoon, unless they're like under two, that's like, you can definitely correct that behavior because generally I can't throw spoons somewhere at lunch or there's going to be problems. And that was right? a bit so, of an exaggeration. But. No, but they could throw their, it's not an exaggeration. Who knows? They could throw their spoon or they could have a little fit and that's okay. You know, it's, it's okay if they don't respond the way you expect. That's another piece of it. It, but you, it doesn't mean that you're never going to make that recipe again or never going to use that ingredient again where the whole thing's a bust. Again, remind yourself of the baseball analogy. You don't just take your kid to a park once and try to get them to connect a ball to a bat. It's going to take many, 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 many tries. It's like a renovation. Think of it. It's going to cost probably a double that you expect, and it's going to take three times longer than you expect. So what you don't do is make them anything else. No, because the meal that you would serve, if you were going to make something that's vegetable laden or a new, you're offering a new vegetable, you're still going to have foods on the table that your child feels safe with. And so there shouldn't be any need to make something new. And that's another thing I teach in the program is how can you actually create and structure meals so you're really only offering one meal? Because no, I absolutely do not believe that you should go and make your child something that they like because they don't they don't need that. That's not helpful and you don't need to do that. The way that I kind of repeat it to myself because I've heard it in various forms before is it's the parent's job to decide what is going on the table and it's the children's job to decide if they're going to eat it or not. Yeah, exactly. Right. That's exactly. That's the division of responsibility. Yeah. That is science that was created by Ellen Satter. She's a very famous dietitian in the U.S. who's been doing research in this area for 40 years. And that is her research. And that's absolutely right. Your job is to provide the food at regular intervals, but your child will always be in charge of what goes into their body. Before I let you go, I would like your take on supplementing with multivitamins. You mentioned mm. it a little bit earlier, but yeah, what's what's your... What's your take on that? Well, my take is this. So I'm not anti-supplement at all. I think supplements nowadays do have a role in our in health and in our health and wellness. I think it's very individual. So I think there isn't broad-based like other than for every single person listening, vitamin D. There's no one who does not need vitamin D supplementation. So please make sure you're taking that and you're giving that to your child. That is absolutely necessary. And that's vitamin D3. But other than that, you know, it really does come down to, there's a lot of mythology, unfortunately, around supplements. There there are a role for certain supplements in different stages of life with different scenarios happening. I think broad-based, you know, everybody needing this and this and this. Sometimes as parents, I think we want to give our children supplements because we assume, well, I'm giving them this, so it's insurance. 
But the thing I want to really remind listeners is that it's not really insurance. The studies have not shown that children who aren't, who don't struggle with a deficiency, if you have a kid that's, you know, generally doing okay on most levels and you're giving them a multivitamin, there's no, there's no evidence that taking that multivitamin is going to keep them healthier or, you know, have them grow bigger or grow more well. It just doesn't exist. Now, I will say in the light of recent events, we do know that there's a highlight on a lot more nutrients that we know can be really important to support immunity. So things like vitamin C, zinc, and iron, I would say, are some of the top nutrients that you would need to make sure is in your child's diet regularly. But, you know, supplements just don't offer that insurance that you think they do. And supplementing can be, especially with children, very dangerous for those types of supplements that are in their active form that will build up in the body and can cause toxicity. So if you're taking a multivitamin and you don't actually realize that your child is eating already somehow lots of vitamin A and you're taking, I've seen some of the labels on these vitamins, they can be excessively high. And so when you add that to your dietary intake, you could get into a danger zone really quickly with young children. I think the best idea and approach is to really take a look, a detailed look at what your child's eating regularly for a week. And if you're starting to see like huge gaps there, you know, work with a professional to see what is likely missing, start to see if you can bring some more of those foods in and then, you know, use it as a process to try and get to where you think you need to be. But the majority of times, like general supplementation, I think is not really as effective as we want it to be as parents. I know it would feel great to be able to just pop a multivitamin in there, right? I would love that too. And I'm not anti-supplement. You know, I do work with different supplements that I think are are good. And I think the other last thing to remember is as as children are very different than, you know, women in this stage of life, your 20s, or 30s, or 40s, or 50s, male people in the stages of life, 20s, 30s, or 40s, and 50s, we all, every single category I just named, and then children in all their stages, I don't know, that's 20 categories. They all need different things. So you see, you can't really go by everyone should take this, or if my kid takes this, I should take that. Or if I take this, it's going to help my kid because you really do have to be very specific. And that's something that I think a lot of parents are missing when it comes to supplementation, the specificity. Thank you so much, Nish. (laughs) You're so welcome. We covered a lot of ground here. I could probably talk to you for hours. (laughs) If people would like to learn more from you, where should they go? Well, I would say, please check out my website. Again, my company is called Vibrant Nutrition. So that's vibrantnutrition.com. You can connect with me on Instagram. I'm pretty active on there. My Instagram account is my name, Nishta Saxana RD. And you can certainly send me a message there. And of course, you can email me, old, old, good old snail mail, nish at vibrantnutrition.com. Yeah, I would love to, you know, if I can be of support to you or your family, you know, or if you're noticing, hey, Nish, there's a whole bunch of misinformation about this. Why don't you do a blog post about it? I would love to hear from you. I'd love to get that information from you and the community and what you need. And then, of course, yeah, I do work with people one-on-one and I'm working with people in my new group program, which focuses specifically on picky eating. It's called Feed Better. So enrollment is now closed, but we're going to be opening up enrollment soon for our next launch. And it's a really amazing program. That's the culmination of everything I've worked with families on in the past 15 years to really give you the the five to eight key things you need to be doing. You get lots of support, live coaching from me, but also lots of in-between support. We have a private group and then I'm running some really fun in-person food clinics to just kind of integrate everything together as well. So it's an amazing program. There's nothing else out there like it. And I'm really excited about it. It's called Feed Better. So you can also connect with me about that. Amazing. I will drop all of those links into the show notes. 
highly recommend you check out Nisha's website and feed for more info. Thanks again for being here. I'll talk to you later. Thanks, Emma. It's a great time. Wait, before you go, I have a quick favor to ask. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts and like what you've heard, please take a moment to hit subscribe and leave a five-star rating and a written review. You can do it right from the app. It takes just a sec and really helps me to be able to continue to share this important information with more people. Plus, you might just get a shout out on a future episode. Thanks so much and bye for now.